Welcome to McKinsey Talks Talent, featuring McKinsey leaders and talent experts Brian Hancock and Bill Shanninger. I'm Lucia Rahili. What drives me crazy is when I hear an executive say, this is just a near-term employee power thing. No, it's not. If you figure out how to be better managers, and if fundamentally what we're doing is better listening to our employees and better helping them be productive, look, that's what's good for everybody. And that's what I'm hopeful comes out of you know, this current wave is a recognition that we can make work life better for people and in doing so, make it better for the company. That was Brian Hancock. Recently, Brian and Bill joined me to talk about worker power. Who has it? Who doesn't? And why not? Brian, Bill, great to see you. It's wonderful to see you. Great to be here. Brian, give us your best quick and dirty on this spike in quitting that emerged so unexpectedly over the course of the pandemic? What's the state of the labor market in the throes of the great attrition? What we're seeing in the labor market is that, you know, there's a record number of job openings and people are continuing to quit. And when you look at the people that are continuing to quit, they're willing to quit even without a job in hand. And so as you look at that, that means that the labor market becomes even more tight because you have people moving to the sidelines. And so until you get some of those people moving back from the sidelines into the labor market, we're going to continue to see some of the tightening that's happening. The tightness in the labor market also has to be eliciting wage growth. It is. And we're seeing wage growth in particular among hourly workers at the lower end of the wage scale. Those are where some of the biggest growth is happening. So there is growth. There is expectation of it going up, but it's not necessarily, you know, double digit wage growth. Folks leave jobs for very different reasons, right? How does this perceived power that is being discussed as accruing to employees at this moment differ among demographics? I think what we're seeing is knowledge workers that have skills that are easily portable across employers, Mm -hmm. and in particular, those skills that are easily portable across geographic locations. So I'm based in New York, I'm a tech worker, and it's easy for me to have a lot of my work done remotely. I've got a nationwide labor market. right? And so I have now the power to walk away from my employer in New York and join an employer in Illinois, in Colorado, in Arkansas. The, the national labor market is open to me. So I can put myself out and say, hey, I want to work on these types of projects and these type of issues because I know that that work is accessible to me. So I think what we're seeing is starting to have a little bit of a bifurcation or continued bifurcation in the labor market where knowledge workers can truly access a national labor market and therefore say, this is how I want to work. And folks that are in more jobs that require you to be in person, service-related jobs, other jobs, are still facing very local labor markets with very different dynamics. And those that are in markets that are in locations where, you know, there's still not enough work to go around. I mean, I do think this this split in the workforce, remember the bulk of the people still, you know, in the classic, do you take work to people or people to work? The bulk of the workforce is still people to work. Mm-hmm. You know, you got to go put your hands on equipment. You got to go directly serve someone. And that's the bulk. And so many of them have been working this entire time. But all of the press and all the writing and all the media have largely been around the creative class and the knowledge class. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So there's already a bit of a split. Right. And it's just getting exacerbated on it because this group is talking about, well, I don't know if I want to come in. <laughs> they got people who've been going to work for two years going, yeah, I'll tell you about not wanting to go in. And I, I think that's it's an interesting thing because you think about power to employees in general. 
But employees as a monolith is probably not all that accurate. There's probably a fissure between those groups of employees. Sure. And those have been afforded the luxury, in air quotes, right, because we know it wasn't all luxurious of working from home versus not. But I don't think we actually have a lot of, of shared experience there between the two groups. And it's interesting. In both cases, the employers are throwing money at both and missing the mark in both. You know, on the, on the folks who've gone to work, you see these signs where it's like $25 an hour to start. We'll pay you that day, right? We're making it hyper-transactional to where, like, literally you're paid for daily work, making it really easy for people to go, try it out, and the first, first three days you decide the boss is a jerk. You'll walk because the place down the street will hire you tomorrow. And so I, I worry a little bit that, you know, on the, where the people have to go to work, more of an hourly class, you know, doing that kind of work, mm-hmm. that it's becoming borderline gig economy in the transactional nature of it. And currently, the supply-demand dynamic is in the favor mm-hmm. of the employee, but merely on the terms of the economics. I'm not sure the actual conditions are any better. Well, I, it's an interesting point to parse the different employee demographics, right? Because wage growth, although, Brian, to your point, is it's not double digits, but it still has been considerably faster than in previous years, probably in the past decade at least, right? So do we expect that wage growth for retail workers or restaurant and hospitality workers to be short-term because they're they're filling a short-term gap in the labor supply and then to even out and slow down again? My gut instinct from an economic standpoint would be this is usually a ratchet. It's very hard to bring wages down. Incredibly hard, right? It's like a real violation. I feel like the labor market is forcing us to resolve things around like minimum wage that was there anyway. Although I do think that we're seeing frontline employers have an increasing expectation with the increasing wage. Mm-hmm. And so I think what you're seeing is that there's going to be an investment in the higher expectation that comes with that wage. And what we have to be careful of and, and watch out for is, hey, as that comes up, are we skilling people into those roles? And what do we do with the folks that aren't at that skill level? Because mm-hmm. right now, today, I mean, there's still over 6 million unemployed people in the U.S. I mean, we're talking about, you know, tightness of the labor markets, which is true, but there's still 6 million people that are disconnected from work who would like to be working. Mm-hmm. And there's another 4 million people that are working part-time that like to be working full-time. So the job market was really tight pre-pandemic. Why do you think we didn't see wage growth of this kind pre-pandemic? What's different? I think what's different is in some of the frontline service roles, you had people that were disconnected from work. You had people that were working in hospitality, you know, working as a bartender, as a server. You have people working in the hotel, you know, working as a housekeeper. And when they were disconnected from work, they then thought about, well, what else could I be doing? And when hiring came back at the hotel, they were like, actually, I got a great job at the Amazon distribution center, or I got a job somewhere else. And it's some of those positions that are, I think, the most kind of in demand and where some of the, the biggest imbalances today. The, work, the, the, the workforce says, by and large said, no, we're not going back. And I think that's, that's the, maybe that's the real power. They aren't going back. And the employers have to decide whether or not they like the new terms. Employers are now drawing people back to the office. And there's a segment of employees who are stubbornly resisting resuming their commute, for example, or whose configuration of needs at home means that it will be really hard for them to return to the office. How do you think that particular 
knot will unravel? Well, look, I think it's a it's a unique opportunity for employers to say, we uh, see you, we hear you, and we understand what's going on, and we want to meet you there. I think the worst thing employers can do is come out with a mandate right now, whether it's the five-day return to how it was or the dressed-up four-day mandate. If we're going to actually meet employees as like people and accept that we all have lives which are bigger than work that we have to resolve with, it may need to be we don't think it's unreasonable to say, you know, a day a month is for the company, you know, maybe two days a month are for the unit, and the rest of it's by who you're working with. And if a lot of your work is individual contributor, that's probably okay. I think people, if they go back, will remember they like the people they work with. They might actually want to have a lunch, right? You know, go get a beer or a drink after work or whatever. Just the social component is lacking for many people, particularly workers who've been able to retire. If you said to those people, hey, come back for 20 hours a week hang out with your friends, but by the way, you get your medical benefits, I think you'd have them come back in droves. Right. I think we're starting to see people who retired during the pandemic come back into the workforce, aren't we? Mm -hmm. Um, Didn't you, in fact, do some research, not necessarily on retired folks, but on folks who voluntarily left the workforce and kind of where they are now? What are you seeing there? There are, you know, some that are coming back to full-time work. You know, it's about a third that are coming back to full-time work. But the remainder are either coming back to part-time work or not coming back at all. And so we are seeing that, you know, folks that have left voluntarily aren't necessarily just hopping to the next job. They're waiting to see, you know, what works right for them, what's the right situation um, for them, their family, and ultimately their career. But they're not rushing into it. You know, women are still disproportionately caregivers, disproportionately involved. And some of the other work. So they're looking at, hey, what's the cost of child care and the availability of child care? What's happening with COVID? Like, is COVID going to come back? And so until we get women back in the workforce and finding jobs that they're excited about, we're going to continue to have uh, this this shortage in many of our frontline roles. We have seen consumer prices shoot up over the past year at I think what is the fastest rate in the past four decades. How much is inflation eating away at employees' wage gains? Straight economics is if inflation is higher than the wage gains, okay, you're losing ground, right? That's just straightforward. So strangely enough, they're getting raises and they're losing ground. Right. And, and particularly on food and gas, right? You see that in the basket of goods, food and gas drive a lot of it and they're both skyrocketing. So we see a lot of media coverage of increasing employee activism, right? Strikes, walkouts, instances, Brian, as you and I were talking about before this recording started, of individual retail stores that are voting to unionize. But membership in unions has been on a downward trajectory. All-time low. For decades, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Doesn't mean it's not, it doesn't mean there's not enthusiasm or looking like it might go up, but it is an all time low. Mm-hmm. So, how meaningful then is what is being reported as a shift in employee agency and over what time frame? But in terms of overall, is there more power to workers in the labor market? I think the jury's really out. I mean, to your point, uh, unionization is an all time low. I think in the private sector, it's just over 6% of the workforce is unionized. And then if you also look at kind of the rise of gig workers and gig platforms, you know, we did a survey last year and found that I think it was 27% of workers reported their job being via gig economy. 
And of those, the majority were looking for full-time employment. And so you still have, you know, these workers that, you know, are feeling like, hey, I'm connected to the work platform mm-hmm. and, you know, don't feel a lot of agency or control vis-a-vis that. And you can't organize against that. So I think we are seeing uh, some indications in some pockets of some increased worker power, but the overall trends are still, if anything, away from unions and towards these work platforms, which, while they're evolving, still haven't, uh, for many workers, met all of their needs. Mm-hmm. I think there's an interesting opportunity, and we'll see whether or not it comes out, because you could argue the migration towards gig or platform or side hustles is rather individualistic, right, for the employee. The whole point of the, pl- of the platforms were intended to be like, you're your own contractor. You, you know, you're your own boss kind of thing. On the opposite end of that, would be if the workers ever figured out, hey, we have an opportunity to really change the face of the workplace just by organizing. It's remarkable. And so you're seeing grass shoots in previously unassailable sectors like software development, like tech. Mm-hmm. And I think we have a lot of leaders who've grown where all the power sat with the company. I don't think we have leaders who know how to respond when the employees say no. And do you think employees have that power now? If you're an employee that that doesn't like your current job and doesn't like what you're doing and doesn't like management, you have two options. One, I can walk across the street or I can, you know, if I'm a knowledge worker, I can get a job anywhere for any place. Um, Or you can turn to your coworkers and say, hey, something's not right here. You know, let's band together. Let's figure it out. It's easier to walk across the street. And so I think what we're seeing in the labor market, because it is fluid enough, that you don't have people that feel trapped to a particular employer. Mm -hmm. We're talking primarily now in a U.S. context. Is there anything to be learned by looking at U.K. and Europe on the collective bargaining organization front? Well, the legislative environment is dramatically different, right? If you think about Holland, uh, Germany, Mm -hmm. France. UK less so, I mean, more than us, but less than those on the continent, around just legislated participatory um, you know, governance. Brian, you alluded to folks who might live in a small town where there's only one employer, and therefore they have difficulty getting other jobs. Say something about industry concentration, how that's changed in recent years, and what the effect is on wages and employee power. So there, I think there are a few things. There. One is, you know, do you still have the company town with the factory? And and to some extent, you still do in pockets of a rural America. But those factories are changing. The you know level of automation is going up. The nature of the roles are changing. And so we are seeing, you know, even in some of those areas, what used to be a 5,000 person factory being a 3,000 person factory with higher skill uh, remaining work. So you are seeing some changes there. And then I think you are also seeing, you know, in terms of industry concentration, I think there is a bit of a concentration on the platforms where there's a return to scale. And so I think you are seeing, you know, hey, there's Uber and there's Lyft. Mm-hmm. If you're going to drive, those are probably two of your big options. If it's a food delivery platform, there are a few more, you know, but there's a set number of platforms that exist out there that you can hook into. Would you say that monopsony power has increased? So a monopoly is where there is a concentration in the sellers 
of a product. Monopsony power is one buyer. And so in this case, the buyer is the buyer of labor. And so, you know, if there is one buyer of labor in a town or one buyer of labor for a particular class, those would be who would have monopsony power. Mm -hmm. I think where people are starting to say, hey, can we use antitrust to break up big X? Mm -hmm. And I think in some of those cases, you may actually have concentration of power. In some of those cases, you may not. But I think it is worth asking the question, hey, is there really a limited number of buyers for labor and are those limited number of buyers dictating the the conditions and in some markets i think the answer is yes in many it may be claimed there's monopsony power but not really but in some markets yeah absolutely Mm -hmm. and how does monopsony power affect wages typically well if you're the only person buying labor you kind of get to set the terms for that market and so you know until there is some form of you know, people leaving that labor market to an adjacent one, you know, you kind of get to, to set it. So the economic theory be it would depress wages because you're there's not a competition for it. Yeah, it's just, it, it's interesting. You know, historically, you would have seen a lot more movement, you know, labor mobility to chase, you know, to chase the buck. I mean, my, you know, I grew up in Lehigh Valley. My dad uh, was a printer and he continued to go south towards Philadelphia because every move south came with, 75 cents or a dollar an hour more. So let's talk about what we can do differently. It's, it's an interesting conundrum. Which I think why you have people saying, well, is this just a moment in time? Mm-hmm. I would hope that for the health of the organizations, they would take it as an opportunity to reset the nature of the exchange and not make it so transactional and actually be thoughtful. I, I actually view it more than anything as an opportunity. Let's say reset the nature of our exchange. So it's not just that I write you a check. It's actually, we are partnering in this. I don't know that everyone's going to take it up on that, you know, but I do think from an employer brand standpoint, there's an opportunity there. So Bill, let's talk about the how on that, right? We've seen businesses, for example, commit to ESG goals, to stakeholder capitalism, at least on paper. But obviously... Maximizing shareholder value has been the norm and the imperative for decades now, and changing behavior is hard. So give us some examples of what the kind of rebalancing you describe might look like in ways that could prove beneficial both to employers and to employees. So like we have these people who are in charge notably people leaders in the middle who for the better part of two and a half decades have been on the receiving end of just hammering. And so all the things we're talking about, which is changing the nature of the work for the workplace, better frontline leaders, better connection to purpose, actual coaching. We by and large have grown leaders for the better part of two and a half years who are incapable of this stuff. Mm-hmm. We haven't grown them to be capable. So it would require a real investment of anyone you get to lead people on your behalf actually making them decent leaders, selecting differently, being more thoughtful about who gets to lead for you. And I, I think quite specifically, if we don't start there, we're just making promises and then putting employees right back in with lousy bosses. I worry quite a bit about that. I think that's actually brand destroying. To me, this this is where I think the intersection of what's good for the company and what's good for the workers is going to come together. If you can improve the day-to-day work experience 
of millions of employees, by making sure they have better managers, making sure that they feel more productive, that they feel more aligned with the value that they're adding day to day, look, that's going to be good for the employee and the employer. What drives me crazy is when I hear an executive say, this is just a near-term employee power thing. No, it's not. If you figure out how to be better managers, and if fundamentally what we're doing is better listening to our employees and better helping them be productive, look, that's what's good for everybody. And that's what I'm hopeful comes out of you know, this current wave is a recognition that we can make work life better for people and in doing so, make it better for the company. All the data on life satisfaction, like the number one driver this is work and it has to do with the boss at work. I mean, it's remarkable. If you spend the bulk of your waking hours at work, that relationship singularly drives so much of whether or not you're happy. I, th- I think it's true on the front line where as automation is taking away the dull and the dangerous, the repetitive work, you know, what you're doing is is people are no longer expected to work like machines. Mm-hmm. People are expected to be people. Problem solving, engage with customers, do those pieces. So even in the frontline context, what you're doing is you are getting people back to the truly the truly human. And then to do that, you have to have great managers. Fantastic. Let's close there. Guys, thanks so much. Great discussion. Thank you. Great to be in person again. It's wonderful. Uh, great to see you. Thanks so much for listening. I'm Lucia Rahili with Brian Hancock and Bill Shanninger. Subscribe to McKinsey Talks Talent wherever you get your podcasts. And if you have questions for Brian and Bill, write to us at McKinseyTalksTalent at McKinsey.com. We'd love to hear from you, and we may answer your question on the show. Be well.